You're listening to The 66 Podcast. Today we are in Daniel chapter 5. I'm really excited about this episode. We've just been talking a little bit before we hit record. And there's a lot of interesting stuff in this chapter. You've probably, you're probably familiar with the story. This is the, the writing on the wall episode. But there's a lot of stuff moving behind the scenes. And it's more than just a ghost story. I guess. Yeah. About a hand appearing out yeah, of nowhere. It's, it's it's really influential when you said the writing on the wall. You know, people say that all the time, probably not knowing that they got the expression he saw the writing on the wall from Daniel chapter five. Right. But it just shows how the Bible has influenced our thought patterns and speech, and mm-hmm. you know. So we need to know the story if we yeah. are going to say the little cliche all the time. Oh yeah. And there's another cliche the. You have been weighed and you have been found. Oh, yeah, or right. you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Yeah. That comes from this story as well. But we'll give you a little bit of setup of what's going on here in the chapter before uh, Drew gives us an outline for it. This is probably about 25 or 30 years after what we read in chapter 4. And just by way of reminder, what we discussed in our last episode in chapter 4 was Nebuchadnezzar's uh, episode where he goes mad. For a while, God is trying to teach him some humility um, to show him that he really is God and that Nebuchadnezzar is not. And so Nebuchadnezzar's reign is going to end in around 562 B.C. And then you have a line of some other kings, and you, by the time Belshazzar, Belshazzar is reigning in Babylon, it's 553. But by the time we get to this particular scene... It's about 539. And we know that because the end of the chapter is going to tell us that at the end of the story, Belshazzar dies. So this is in the final year. As a matter of fact, the final night of Belshazzar's reign. Um, So what's happening here is as this feast is going on, I think it's cool to keep in mind, or it's, it's good and it's a very cool scene to picture in your head, you have when this feast starts. Meanwhile, Persia, the Persian army, is gathering uh, their strength and is probably just outside of Babylon while the feast is going on. If they're not just outside of Babylon, they're preparing their means of siege, which is really cool that we'll get into in the next section, I think, how the army got into the city and killed Belshazzar and took over Babylon. But this is kind of not really the calm before the storm because it's not very calm. It's the like the eye of the storm. Yeah. And it shows you how poor a leader Belshazzar is. He's throwing a party on the night of his death. Yeah. On the on the night when Babylon, Babylon is toppled by yeah. Persia. Yeah. 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 Also, this reminds me just to set this up a little bit more. You'll remember from Daniel two the the four kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel that the the golden head of the statue he dreamed about represented his kingdom, and then after his kingdom would come another. Well, this is the transition from gold to silver on right. the statue. If you want to mm-hmm. think of it and kind of get a little review back to Daniel 2, the silver being the Medes and Persians. And Daniel at this time uh, is probably about, or he's in his 80s, does that sound right to you? From, yeah, it's hard to imagine that, but yeah. um, Persia is going to release 
the Jews from captivity. Daniel lived through the whole captivity. He was taken in the the first group, right, in 605 B.C. Mm -hmm. And so we're looking at getting closer to the end of captivity. This is 65 years later. Yeah. Yeah. So he's been in captivity for 65 years in Babylon. Yeah. He's an old guy. Yeah, but he's been in a palace instead of like a prison. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but when we say captivity. Still, he's never known freedom and never will. You know, right. Just, uh, so are we ready to get into Daniel chapter 5? Mm-hmm. Okay, we're Daniel 5. As, as Andrew has explained, there is a new king in town, Belshazzar, and he throws a party. Verse 1 says he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So, in the first four verses here, you see two ways of blasphemy, two descriptions of Belshazzar's blasphemy. And our listeners, I'm sure, picked this up, but I'll just highlight them. First of all, he's not just getting drunk, but he's getting drunk by drinking wine out of the sacred vessels that had been looted from the temple in Jerusalem. That's pretty bad, because these had been consecrated only for the Lord's service, certainly not for a Babylonian uh, drunk fest, or whatever you want to call this thing. But secondly, he's praising gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. False gods. So he's committing idolatry and blasphemy. He's uh, denying the true God and chasing after false gods. Yeah, and Drew, that description you just gave of what they're doing at that festival lines up with what a lot of historians describe as a Babylonian annual festival done in celebration of their gods. Um, Some historians even think they've narrowed this thing down to October 12th. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, the historian Xenophon says on the night when... The Persians attacked Babylon. A certain festival had come around in Babylon, during which all Babylon was accustomed to drink and revel all night long. Which sounds yeah. like what's going sounds on like, here. Sounds like this. Yeah. But it got interrupted. Uh, verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Almost a cartoonish mm-hmm. uh, description yeah. of what happened. He was so afraid that he was demonstrating these these cartoonish things. And I'm not I'm not saying that this didn't happen. It did happen. Um, it's kind of funny, you know. Sometimes people ask me why I use the particular translation I use. This mm-hmm. is off subject. Um, we read from the ESV. It's not because we think it's the only good one. I used to preach out of the King James. And one of the reasons I quit using the King James to preach and teach in, I, I love the translation, but one of the reasons is in Daniel 5. This is a great example of how language has changed. I think the King James says that the king's knees smote one against the other. 
smote one I'm against so the other. I'm so scared. My knees are smiting one another. <laughs> yeah. It's You it's haven't just, heard that lately? That, not lately, no. I, it kind of fell out of circulation. But, uh, you know, he is, as we all would be, terrified. And, uh, you know, the lords, the noblemen that are there are perplexed as to what is going on. I think you would be, too. Um and then the queen walks in, verses 10 and following. Now, this queen, we may talk about her more in the next section, mm-hmm. but this would be, we believe, Belshazzar's mother, not his wife. Uh, she would have been the wife of Nabonidus, uh, the predecessor to Belshazzar, right. and most importantly, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember how important Nebuchadnezzar was? So this explains how she can just walk into the middle of the party and give advice. Yeah. Because, you know, um, you think about the wives of Persian kings, like Esther. She was terrified to disturb. And I know this Persian, this is Babylon, but all of these tyrants were the same. You know, Esther thought it was a threat to her life to walk in unsolicited and speak to her husband. This is the mother of the king, but she's the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And it also explains a little bit of what she's about to say, she's going to go on and on about Daniel. Right. And so what we read here, uh, what you're about to read for us about her her uh, declaration that she makes, makes perfect sense if it comes in the context of a person who saw Daniel's work firsthand. Yeah, she, she is more Daniel's age than her son's age. She's seen yeah. all of these things. It's probably been many years since Daniel has been called upon to do anything. You right. know, a lot of time has transpired. As Several kings said, have come up and have gone. Yeah, there's what, three between th- Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. I think that's what I read. Yeah, so at least three. They didn't serve very long, but you, you lined up the years for us uh, earlier in the podcast. Mm-hmm. So Daniel comes in, and this is this is kind of a pattern that we see in the book of Daniel. Uh, the magicians can't do anything. There's a problem. There's something that needs to be interpreted. Sometimes a dream, in this case, a mysterious hand appeared writing mm-hmm. on the wall and uh, Daniel's called in and the king had offered gifts of what what was it um, a, a chain robe. a robe a chain around his neck third place in the kingdom in verse 17 Daniel yeah. he told the king that he could keep his gifts he's not quite as impressed with this king as he seemed with Nebuchadnezzar maybe it's his age maybe it's Belshazzar's folly. I, you know, I don't know yeah. what it is, but he doesn't seem to respect Belshazzar and use the deferential language that we see uh, with regard to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, he recalls the events that we talked about in our last episode, uh, the events of Daniel chapter 4 and declares the sovereignty of God, which I want to remind everybody is the theme of the book of Daniel. Verse 20 says, when his heart was lifted up, this Daniel describing Nebuchadnezzar, and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was like was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and sets over it whom he will. There's that key idea we've highlighted since Daniel chapter 1. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a responsibility that Belshazzar had, having this delegated authority from heaven, and he didn't humble his heart. He was like his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and exalted himself against the Lord of heaven. Verse 22 says, You, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. He knew the story of his um, grandfathers, probably who this was. Yeah. But you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of the house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines, have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And so the writing on the wall is described as being meany, meany, tekel, and parson. And these are these are strange words. I mean, it's probably only consonants on the wall. And one of the yeah. problems of interpretation is which vowels do we put in here? And Daniel mm-hmm. says, this is meany, meany, tekel, um, and parson. Probably was Aramaic. We don't know for sure. One way of reading it would be in terms of weights and value, uh, like mina, which would have been 50 shekels, mina, mina, shekel, half shekel. It may be uh, translated into that. But even if you get that, um, it's not going to give you what that symbol symbolism of weights and measures and money means. Yeah. So Daniel has to interpret both the words by putting vowels with them, and then he has to say what those four symbolic words mean. So verse 25 uh, has the inscription, meany, meany, tekel, and parson. And verse 26, Daniel says, this is the interpretation of the matter. Meany, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, or parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So it was like the words were numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Right. But then what that means is your days are numbered, your kingdom's days are numbered, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. In other words, you've been judged. And uh, Parson, your kingdom is going to be divided, and it's going to be given to the Medes and Persians. So Belshazzar mm-hmm. gives Daniel these clothes and the gold chain, everything Daniel said he didn't want. He gave them the worthless position of third ruler in the kingdom. A kingdom that was only to last a few more hours. Mm-hmm. And that and, third ruler phrase is going to be important in the next section when we talk about who Belshazzar was. Okay. A little bit. So if yeah. somebody's listening Why to this. Why wouldn't he have given him second ruler? Yeah. Yeah. So somebody's listening wondering, what's that third ruler thing mean? Uh, hang on. We'll talk about that. Yeah, that is an section. interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in a long time. Mm-hmm. It's coming back to me. That's interesting that he's yeah. a third ruler. Yeah, it's it really helps, weird. Helps keep the Bible consistent with history and, and everything yeah. else. Last verse, though, tells us that that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, uh, which is like Babylonian, mm-hmm. he was killed, and Darius, or Darius the Mede, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. We'll have more to say about Darius next week. But uh, for now, that closes our reading, and uh, there's a lot left to be discussed. So we're saving some time for that. If you didn't get your questions answered, just hold on. We'll be back with some deeper thoughts.
So as we come back to think a little bit more deeply about what we have just read and what Drew's just outlined for us, the first thing we want to look at is this Belshazzar character, who exactly he was um, and what his role was in the kingdom. Uh, the first thing we want to mention is that the text says that Nebuchadnezzar is his father several times, I think in verse 8, verse 11, verse 18, it says Nebuchadnezzar is his father. And then uh, we also read where Belshazzar is called the son of Nebuchadnezzar. So in one place, he is uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the father, and then Belshazzar is also called the son. Um, your Bible might have a footnote under those words, uh, the first time father appears is in verse 2. Um, at the bottom, it might say, or predecessor. And then where son appears in verse 22, you might have a footnote at the bottom that says, or successor. That was a common thing in Hebrew um, for someone who was even a grandson or a great-grandson to be referred to as the son of. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing applies for the father as well. Uh and we and already it's not too foreign a concept for us. I mean, we talk about the faith of our fathers. There's a song like that. Yeah. We talk about the fathers of this country, forefathers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, personally, we probably wouldn't call a grandfather father, but yeah. I don't think this is going to be a huge obstacle for people. Yeah. And I guess we really haven't set up the problem yet, but... Yeah. Um, you know, the main thing is Belshazzar was not directly the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, But he right. was Nebuchadnezzar's son Yeah, in terms of a descendant. Like you said, the, the word is flexible there. Mm-hmm. And the problem is this. A lot of uh, historians will note that those sentences that we just went over and say, well, actually history records that Belshazzar was the son of a man named Nabonidus who is also king. Um, so they say, well, he's the son of Nabonidus, not the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And so they try to, uh, I guess, dismiss the biblical account here uh, like they do so many times with historicity of the Bible. But it's interesting. Yeah. Anything that, any anything they can find, Yeah, they're going to try to turn it into something. And it's mm-hmm. a lot of times these arguments are very dishonest. You know, They know that there are other ways to interpret this. Yeah. But they're going to, they're going to, Try to take anything they can find and turn it into an inconsistency or a, or a contradiction or factual factual inaccuracy. Yeah, and it's it's funny to me that usually it's just a matter of time until there's some kind of archaeological discovery that lines up with Scripture. Right. You know, if they say, yeah. oh, there's nowhere in secular history that blah, blah, blah is mentioned. Well, you give it enough time, and somebody finds an inscription somewhere that lines up with Scripture. Um, and that is the case here. We found that um, Belshazzar is mentioned in uh, what's been called the Nabonidus Cylinder. Uh, it's just this cylinder with the inscriptions on it that includes Belshazzar's name. Um, and it also says that this king, Nabonidus, is in a place called Tema. Um, he is there, and his son and the armies of the land are in Babylon. So it's interesting that we have here Belshazzar is mentioned directly as the son of Nabonidus, who is king, while his son Belshazzar is also 
uh, given a position of authority back in Babylon. And that lines up with the history. Nabonidus was known for his uh, deeply religious uh, following of the god Sin. The god... Uh, nice yeah, name for a god. Yeah. yeah. The Babylonian god Sin. And he, uh, all throughout Babylon, he excavated temples and restored uh, the worship rites of that particular god. And he spent a lot of time, he had a royal residence in Tama. And he stayed there a lot. He would stay there for some 10 years at a time. And that's where he was when uh, Persia came in to take over Babylon. Okay. So odds are this Nabonidus guy, here's how this works. You have Nabonidus who serves as king. He actually was an official for Nebuchadnezzar. So this Nabonidus guy who served as an official for Nebuchadnezzar on down the line years later becomes king. Mm-hmm. Um, he most likely married, as we mentioned earlier, married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. And then their son, uh, whether or not uh, this daughter of Nebuchadnezzar already had given birth to Belshazzar, so he was a little bit older, or whether he came from the marriage between Belshazzar and Nabonidus. Uh, either way, Belshazzar is a grandson. The marriage, I think you just said Nabonidus and Belshazzar were married. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean. Belshazzar's no, I mother. <laughs> this all gets really tricky and complicated. Yeah. I'm trying to get through this as, as compact. I'm sorry to interrupt you. I just didn't want anybody to be confused in thinking that Belshazzar yeah. and Nabonidus. Well, I'm already confused. So yeah. odds are others are confused. Well, you were saying I'm the one uh, whether, to, to you were saying whether he was... Um, he could have. There's a problem. Some people bring up. Well, he could not have been the son of Nabonidus and Nebuchadnezzar's daughter because it would have made him too young to be ruling at the same time Nabonidus was. Which doesn't. It doesn't really have to be a problem. He could have been old enough by then. Yeah. But also, I mean, there were way Jewish that kings is, that ascended the throne at seven, and I know this isn't a seven-year-old yeah. here, but. Um, that seems like he's probably not him. very old though because he's, well, he's sitting at, there throwing a party while yeah. meanwhile Persia's coming in to kill everybody. So right, yeah, he's obviously not a wise, and and again, you don't see the deferential language towards him from Daniel mm-hmm. that Daniel gave to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's really speaking to him as somebody who's many years his senior, so yeah. he's probably a pretty young guy. If that helps, yeah, I don't know. That's true. So this Belshazzar guy. Is he is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, probably the grandson. Uh, the term there is ambiguous, can be son or grandson, but he is really the son of a king named Nabonidus. And this is really good evidence for why this, this weird, mysterious promise that Belshazzar gives. He says, Whoever reads this writing and shows me the interpretation or interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. That means there's two other rulers. And if you have Nabonidus as the king and his son Belshazzar as the king in Babylon, you have two rulers and he's saying, okay, whoever can interpret this is going to be king with me and my dad, yeah. basically. <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, he can't do the Pharaoh thing that right. Pharaoh did with Joseph. You're number two. Because if he gave him the second place, then he'd be giving him his job. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's see, true. Next week, I don't know if I should say this because it may be this may be a very boring conversation to our listeners. But next week, when we start talking about Darius, 
Uh, we're going to see a similar situation with Cyrus and Darius. Yeah, right. Where Cyrus can't, you know, we're talking about huge empires here. And there is an emperor, but, you know, he can't practically rule every province. Yeah. And so um, you'll see Darius in the Babylonian province ruling as a proxy for Cyrus, who was at the top of the chain. Yeah. And it's kind of like what you're describing here, which I think is a sound theory backed up by archaeological proof that Nabonidus was the king. Mm-hmm. But then his son with Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, Belshazzar, obviously very young guy, not mm-hmm. very wise, uh, was with Daniel here in Babylon taking care of matters here. Um, right. You know, I want to go back to the skeptics for a minute. I found it interesting that there was a scholar in 1850 that declared with much boldness that uh, Belshazzar was a figment of the writer of Daniel's imagination. Mm-hmm. And then, this is, I should have said this before because you made this point, but it was in 1854 that an archaeologist named J.G. J. Taylor found proof of Belshazzar, not only Belshazzar's existence, but his connection to Nabonidus and all of these things that we've been putting up. So, in four years after that guy made the statement, they find this guy's name all over the place yeah. in the excavations. Of Babylon, yeah, um, yeah, really so interesting stuff. It's good, good to see that happen. It's very satisfying to Christians, um, but I don't know if it really bothers the skeptics. They just move on to some other obscure reference to start putting right. on that one, like Darius, which we'll cover yeah. next week. Darius, or Darius is kinda, whatever that guy's name is. Yeah, I always I call I'll, him Darius. I'll start calling him Darius if you call him Darius, just for the sake of kind. I heard him on an well. I like Darius, but I heard on an audio Bible Darius. So Darius. I'm trying to change. Sounds much more educated. Sounds yeah. smarter. Darius. Um, Darius. So I think that pretty much covers. Is that all the stuff? Oh for Belshazzar? yeah. I'm afraid we've lost Anything everybody else? anyway. Yeah. So there's all the boring stuff about Belshazzar, Belshazzar, Belshazzar. However you want to pronounce his name. Stop. Um, the next thing is the next thing I want to talk about that I think is pretty interesting is the fall of Babylon. Uh, history records that Cyrus is the one who's who is responsible for taking over Babylon. Cyrus may or may not have been a part of that battle, but either way, as the king, he would have been given credit for it. Um, Josephus records that Darius the Mede was the one responsible for it. Um, but other historians record that two of Cyrus's generals, um, and I'm going to butcher these names. Do it. Um, Graditas and Gabrias, maybe. Um, which, don't forget that name, Gabrias. I'm going to bring him up next week when we talk about Darius. Found some interesting stuff about those two. Um, so what happens is probably this. This is what a lot of historians record. Cyrus blocks the flow of the river Euphrates, which is a pretty big feat in and of itself. Mm -hmm. But the city of Babylon, the Euphrates River came in from the north of the city, and it goes under the wall. So picture there's probably like a little archway in the wall where the river's coming through, not very high, uh, but a little archway, maybe not even, maybe it goes underground. Because uh, the city was very fortified, it was a very safe place to be. Uh, comes in through the north, goes through the city, and exits through the south. Uh, 
And so what Cyrus's plan is, is to block the flow of the River Euphrates or these generals or whoever it was. They block the flow until the river runs low enough for the Persians to simply just get in the riverbed and waltz right in. And history records that the opposition they met was not really um, much of an opposition, partly partly because this festival is going on and everybody's you know partying drunk most of them probably out of their minds at this point yeah and uh they waltz right in and they kill belshazzar and that's the i mean it's a really how how could a guy be that i mean maybe all right so maybe these dams that he was building were miles away from the city Mm -hmm. um i'm trying to imagine them being this oblivious and as oh, you yeah, were describing right. it, I was picturing them right outside the wall building these dams that took months, maybe years, to build. Yeah. The Euphrates River is not a small river. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe the particular part of it they were on was small. But, you know, if that's going on out there, they should have been ready. I mean, if they were this, they would have been able to see this, but... Yeah, or at least notice the water level dropping. Yeah, has anybody noticed it? Yeah, because it's not like it would be like... coming through here? Not be like one second, you know, it's normal level, and then you go around, you go get something to eat, and you come back, and oh no, all of a sudden it's like three feet deep, and somebody can walk through it. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point. Maybe the... uh, Who knows? Maybe should do a little more study on that festival how long it lasted, something like that. This this is really interesting, though, um, because in the prophecies of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51, Jeremiah predicts the destruction of Babylon. And uh, he does so with typical prophetic, poetic language. But there is are constant references to water and water being dried up. That goes along with the historical record. And keep in mind, Jeremiah wrote these things 60, 70, 80 years prior to the destruction of Babylon. And I'm just going to read a little bit from Jeremiah 51. Here is um, here is uh, verse 36. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will plead your cause and take vengeance for you. I will dry up her sea. He's speaking about Babylon's sea and make her fountain dry. And Babylon shall become a heap of ruins, the haunt of jackals, a horror, and a hissing without inhabitant. And then a few verses later, he says in verses 41 and following, how Babylon has taken the praise of the whole earth seized, how Babylon has become a horror among the nations. The sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with its tumultuous waves. Her cities have become a horror, a land of drought and a desert, a land in which no one dwells and through which no son of man passes. Um, I will punish Bel in Babylon. Now, Bel is a Babylonian god. We're talking about a king named Belshazzar, which means literally Bel, God, the the false god Bel, protect the king. Mm-hmm. And so, which he's would even be almost getting to the point where he's naming the king's name here, which would be just an incredible coincidence. If it is, because none of those other kings in the line, I got the list right in here in front of me. They nobody were named. Bell. Yeah, nobody's named after Bell. They're named after Marduk. They're named after other gods. He's the only one in that list from Nebuchadnezzar on to the end of Babylon that's named after Bell. Yeah. So 
He I says, mean, I will take out of his mouth what he swallowed. You know, that's almost getting back to the water language again. Mm-hmm. The nations shall no longer flow to him. Like, they they took him down by not allowing the water to flow to him. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, the nations, is this a play on words from somebody that knows exactly how Babylon's going to fall? The wall of Babylon has fallen. And there there's more, but that's enough. And, uh, you know, I just found that really interesting. Yeah. That And there's no... There's no doubt that Daniel was written later than Jeremiah. There's no mm-hmm. questioning that. The date of Jeremiah is is pretty solid. The date of Daniel is pretty solid. Um, if anything, they want to say Daniel came even later than than what we believe, but um, certainly not closer to Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is pinpointing specific details about the destruction of of Babylon. It's really yeah. really amazing and. I know that's not for everybody. You know, some people, their faith is really strong in the Bible, and they don't need to see these kinds of things. But it doesn't hurt to yeah. see that predictive prophecy is through through the whole thing. All right, do we want to do anything else? That's all I've got. That's all, all right. the knowledge in my mind about Daniel 5. Okay, so you should feel, your head should feel empty now. Yep. You have emptied it of it's everything. It's like normal. feels pretty yeah. empty. Okay. Well, let's take a break, put some more stuff in Andrew's head, and then we'll come back with some practical applications. So, uh, you know, what can we learn? The two main themes that are repeated in this chapter, it seems to me, are sin and judgment. And I want to note two things about sin and about three or four things about judgment. So here's what it says to us about sin. Number one, sin is not static. In other words, it doesn't just stay the same. It doesn't plateau. It always leads downhill. It's always a slippery slope. Uh, And the way that comes out in this story is we have read about Nebuchadnezzar's treachery. He was a bad guy. Mm -hmm. But he was a different kind of bad than Belshazzar. Belshazzar was bad in a very immature, frivolous way. He's throwing parties when they're building siege, when they're making siege on his city. He's he's, um, not even caring about that. He's committing the kind of sacrilege that I don't even think Nebuchadnezzar was capable of. Nebuchadnezzar had some kind of respect for Jehovah, but Belshazzar's drinking wine out of the sacred vessels. (laughs) And if this was something that was going on all the time in Babylon, it wouldn't have been mentioned in this story, I don't think. But it's it's emphasized over and over again that Belshazzar did this, implying that it had never been done before. Yeah, well, because usually, and I failed to mention this in the read section, but usually the vessels of honor from whatever people they conquered were given some kind of respect, or air quotes, respect. Yeah, Yeah, or they would put them in their own temples to their own gods. Yeah. Kind of as a way of, hey, this was used to serve their gods, but now they're going to be used to serve ours. 
But this guy, like you said, Belshazzar, he's committing something that even the Babylonians would have recognized as being disrespectful. Right. Yeah. It was it was not because he'd run out of vessels. It was a symbolic gesture of ridicule towards uh the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Very different from Nebuchadnezzar who was willing to call the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel the most high god. Yes. Very different. Well, after he threw him in a fiery furnace, but yeah. still, this guy was then, worse right. uh, in terms of his frivolity. Uh, so keep that in mind in your own life. I mean, sin leads downhill in your own life as well. If you don't keep it in check, if you don't repent, you're going to build up a tolerance. You're going to become desensitized. All these words that we use all the time, they're true. You'll go downhill until the point where you, you turn around. Um Number right. two, another thing about sin. Sin makes us impervious to danger. It's like a drug that puts us to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we think, how odd for judgment to come so quickly upon Belshazzar. Um, this was a fortified city, and this had been going on for a long time. Yeah. You know, it's not like, you know, Persia speedily got there, and you described it well in the last section. They've been working on these. Um, sieges and and dams for the river for a long time. Mm-hmm. And Belshazzar was enjoying himself so much he didn't have time to care about that. No. So um, we need to know it, that sin, by its very nature, numbs us, dulls our senses, it causes us to drop our guard, and it eventually leads us to doing things that we never dreamed were, were possible. Right. Uh, Daniel even tells Belshazzar in verse 22, he says, he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar and all the problems that came to him because he would not recognize God. And he says, you saw all of that and you still have refused to give God honor. Yeah. So he says, you knew the danger that lies within forgetting about the Most High God. You saw that happen to your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. You know that's happened to him, and you know why it's happened to him. And now you're trying to play the same game, and the kingdom is going to be taken from you, just like it was taken from your grandfather. Right, right. Uh, let's get into judgment. Now, judgment is a very controversial subject for some reason. Uh, mm-hmm. People don't like to think of God in terms of a God who judges. They don't like to think of themselves as Christians, as people who judge one of the most popular verses in the New Testament is Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. Um, so, four points about judgment, because it's definitely here in those words, many, many, tekel and parson. Uh, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. That is a, a statement of condemnation. And so the first thing I want to say about judgment is that it is necessary or there's no love. You know, people want to make love and judgment exclusive if you either love people or you judge people but the two don't go hand in hand and really they're two sides of the same coin because think of it in terms of the exiles in Babylon who are being mistreated think of Daniel mm-hmm. did Daniel see God as a God of judgment through all this or as a God of love the exiles who have been abused by the Babylonians whose homes had been destroyed, who saw their temple in in rubble and ruins, did they see the destruction of Babylon as love or judgment? 
But the Babylonians were looking at judgment at the same time the Jews were looking at love. Yeah. Because love protects that which is cherished. And so, um, you know, how could you say that God loved the Israelites if he had not judged Babylon? Yeah. I mean, it's not in a vacuum. He can't, he could not have, quote unquote, loved Babylon and Israel at the same time. Yeah. And I think you can ask any parent about, kind of on a different note of that, you mentioned that love and judgment are the same, are two sides of the same coin. I think if you ask any parent, they would agree with that. Um, yeah, definitely. Because if you love your child, you're going to have to discipline them in some form. I know there's a lot of theories on how you know the correct way to discipline a child and this and the other, but I think everybody can at least agree on the basic fact that if you love your child, at some point you're going to have to lay down some kind of judgment. Uh, you and know, whether it be in the fe- form of you know grounding them or taking an iPad or blah blah, blah whatever list yeah. of things you want to get into. But, but not just judging them, I agree with that, but also the things that try to hurt them. Yeah. Like, how, as a parent, if you love your child, how are you going to feel about pornography? How are you going to feel about drugs? How are you going to feel about alcohol? How are you going to feel about bad influences? How are you going to feel about peer pressure? How are you going to feel about bullies? Mm-hmm. You know, um, how are you going to feel about falsehood? Um, you know, people teaching them things that, that aren't true. Um you know, all of these negative influences in their lives, you're going to judge them. You're going to say, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. So how can we imagine a God of love who does not judge? It's impossible. It's impossible. Right. Uh, Second point about judgment, and all of these are kind of related to one another. Judgment promotes peace by reducing our need for retaliation. If you know that there is a God who will judge everything at the end of time, who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, then you can arrest your need for retaliation. Um, I've got a quotation here from Miroslav Volf, who was a Croatian, who had seen a lot of violence in the Balkans. And he says, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence results from the belief in God's refusal to judge. In a sun-scorched land, soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die with other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. In other words, you know, it's easy for Americans that live in peace and prosperity to say, uh, we shouldn't be so condemning, we shouldn't be so judgmental, uh, we shouldn't desire God to judge these people, we shouldn't pray for an end to this evil and we shouldn't have wars and all that. It's easy for us to say that because we got a great life over here. Mm-hmm. But for a guy like Wolf, who um, lived in, in a bloodbath and saw people, innocent people dying every day, he prayed for vengeance. And, uh, you know, he says it takes a suburban paradise to, to be able to not have that kind of attitude. No. So, um, you know, the only way we can keep ourselves from retaliating is to remind ourselves that there is a God who will take care of all of this, and we don't have to. Mm-hmm. Um, none of us likes to suffer injustice, is another way of putting this. Yeah. When we're really put to it. Here's number three on judgment. Judgment upholds God's morality. All right, so can you... And this kind of goes back to what we were saying about love, and I have a quote here from J.I. Packer. Not to judge the world would be to show moral indifference. 
the final proof that God is a perfect moral being, not indifferent to questions of right and wrong, is the fact that he has committed himself to judge the world. You know, how could you say God is good if he was not also the judge? Yeah. That's the idea. And, and one last one, judgment gives meaning to life. You know, one of the arguments that atheists will always use against believers is they will say that suffering is senseless and meaningless and unjust and there's nothing there's no you know reason for it and if there is no final judgment they're right um mm-hmm. you know life doesn't have any meaning if all of this is not headed towards judgment day that's the bottom line yeah yeah, I got, a, a really good I got another quote here from Leon Morris. The doctrine of final judgment gives meaning to life. It is unthinkable that the present conflict between good and evil should last throughout eternity. Judgment means that evil will be disposed of authoritatively, decisively, finally. Judgment means that in the end, God's will will be perfectly done. Um, so it's just, you know... When we read these passages, and, and we've seen this a lot in the Old Testament. In fact, I may have made some of these points already in previous episodes. When you're reading a book like Zephaniah or Nahum or, um, of course, Daniel, when you're reading Jeremiah about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem, stop before you begin criticizing God for being so harsh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he gave Babylon a lot of opportunities. Nebuchadnezzar, his madness was an opportunity for him to learn. And not only him, but his grandson, as Daniel says in Daniel chapter 5. And so God had been long-suffering with, with Nebuchadnezzar and his family in, the, in Babylon. But in the end, he's not going to allow sin to go unpunished there's no repentance then he will finally end his long suffering with a blow of justice yeah and that's what happened in today's reading from Daniel chapter 5 yeah and I like what you said about how that judgment gives meaning to everything that's going on just life in general because if there's no judgment then like you said it doesn't like the things we do in life don't matter right there's no there's, there's no right, there's no wrong. Yeah. There's just you know, an eternal And there is there's really no good and no evil. There's just different yeah. perspectives. There's just pain, suffering, torture, might makes right, the strong survive, survival of the fittest. That's all there is. Yeah. I don't want to live in that world and I know a lot of other people don't either, and the good news is that's not the reality. The right. reality is justice and love. Two mm-hmm. sides of the same coin. So uh, we're we're grateful that you joined us. I know that if you're following along with us, you know, live. I guess the way that you put that. If you if you're following in real time with us, you've uh, missed us the last couple of weeks. We've yeah. been very busy. We're trying to figure out a way to keep this going through the summer without interruption, and we may start recording some episodes on slower weeks ahead of time. So that I mean, last year we we went the whole summer. It was. It was hard. I think we recorded two episodes of the summer, and one of them was the one that we did remotely where I was at camp. Yeah. <laughs> I was at camp with the teenagers. 
That was bad. I just went out to a little secluded. It was really nice for me because I just got to go to a secluded area at a camp. You know, it was real nice. The birds chirping. Yeah, Problem they were. was, on the recording, you can tell where I am. Birds chirping. Yeah. Almost like they were sitting here with a mic in front of them as part of the conversation. But yeah, uh, this summer, hopefully we'll figure some of that stuff out. So if you hear some of our podcasts that are less than high quality, cut us some slack because we're <laughs> traveling sometimes. and We're trying to figure this to thing this out. Remotely. But we love doing it. And, uh, and we're glad you're listening to it. We've, uh, we've had... Here recently, I know we've had a, I guess um, I don't know what the right word is. We've got uptick. more people listening to us. Uptick. uptick. I was gonna say resurgence, but there can't be a resurgence. There wasn't the first surgence. Right. So we've had our first surgence here recently. Yeah. We've surged. Yeah. With now lots of folks help listening. us to resurge. Yeah. Um. So we thank you guys for listening. Um, if you know somebody that's teaching a Bible class that could use, uh, maybe they have a long commute. Um, they could use some extra help in their study. That's what this is meant for. You can ride in your car instead of maybe just wasting time uh, trying to kill the time to get there, uh, just being bored in the car if you're going on a road trip. Uh, take the opportunity, download a few episodes before you leave so you don't kill your data plan trying to stream it, and um, listen to it in your car on a long ride. Uh, maybe take some mental notes if you're driving. It's not a good idea to actually take notes down on a piece of paper with a pen. Uh, it's probably going to be dangerous. But uh, it's meant to be a tool, sort of an audio commentary kind of thing for you to help you out in your Bible study, uh, personal Bible study, but also if you're teaching a class and need a, a quick help, a quick resource. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at The66Podcast. 66 is a number. Don't type it out and spell it out. We're on Facebook now. We have been for a few months. Uh, same deal there. The 66. We have a website, the66.net. So if you go into Google and type in the 66 podcast, you'll find us. Um, go to the iTunes store. Find us in the podcast store. Uh, leave us a review. Uh, subscribe. And we really appreciate you guys listening to us. If you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can email us at um, dkaiser at arcoc.com or akingsley at arcoc.com. Drew, am I leaving anything out? That's it. I think we should stop now and uh, go eat some lunch. Yeah.